Um, we will find that in Genesis 5, they wrote some things they really want us to remember, as Josh has just said, and we will look at that, and hopefully we'll find some things to remember, some things to dig into. But let's first pray. Father, we come before you with a great desire to know your word. Father, we know that you reveal things to us through your word. It is my desire today to share the things that you hold true, to herald your word well, to hallow you as we speak. And I know that I speak for all of us, Father, as we beg your Holy Spirit not only to speak through me, but to help each of us as we hear and learn from your word today. So I pray that you'll bless this time as we look at Genesis 5. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Um, for those of you who have found it, great. If not, if you need a Bible in front of you, under the seats, you'll find it on page 4. It's not hard to find. Um, and you can certainly take that Bible with you if you'd like. Read along with me. Our text is a bit long today, but it actually reads very easily. And it's very cyclical, and we'll pick that up, okay? And I'm going to start with the last verse of Genesis 4. Verse 26, it says, To Seth also was a son born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them, and they named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and he had other sons and daughters Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enuk. Jared lived after he fathered Enuk 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Now when Anuk had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Anuk walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Anuk were 365 years. Anuk walked with God and he was not, 
for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. So all the years of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, this should open lots of questions. But let me say, first of all, the title is on genealogy, but we're not studying the genealogy for genealogy's sake, okay? I won't, I won't lie to you. I find it very interesting about genealogies. And to study names is very revealing. But we're looking from Adam to Noah to see what God has said about these men. And that's what we're going to do today. Um, I am convinced, no matter what some of the people who argue this would say, these ten names are all inclusive. These are the predilluvial patriarchs. Predilluvial means before the flood. Thank you for that face. Um, the point is that these ten men were chosen, were chosen for a reason, and were named for a reason. And we're going to see what God does about this. Um, and you might ask the question, I am going to throw this out there, why would I want to teach Genesis 5? It's so different than the other books of Genesis. I taught through a Sunday school class a little over 20 years ago in my home with a bunch of college students. And the goal was, of course, to see the Messiah in every book of the Old Testament. It's not as readily apparent in Genesis 5 as in some of the chapters. But it is apparent. I'm not suggesting it's not. But as we dig through today, I think when we're done, we'll see just how clearly we can see him with the right amount of study. And, and with that, I'll go ahead and move forward. We are going to use a couple of words today. Lineage is the word that speaks of one ancestry looking backwards. Genealogy is looking forwards to those people who came from somebody. So we speak of the genealogy of Adam and the lineage of Noah, just so we have that kind of straight as we go through. In case I say something and it sounds weird. Um, but I want to talk about the names of the patriarchs and make observations about them. And as we do that, we'll divide it into what do we learn about the patriarchs themselves in Genesis 5? Then, why was the nuke so different? What made him so special? Because he is truly different. And what do the names of the patriarchs tell us about Jesus? Very specifically. Well, we start again at Genesis 4.26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. You may recall a couple weeks ago, John made the comment up here how biblical names are very important. Then they're very significant. They're not chosen. They were not chosen so much at the time of the Bible as they are today. I'm not saying names are not thought out today but they were really poured over in the old days. You may even recall that when John was going to name his 
or when, um, I forgot his name, when John was named, they said to Zechariah, that, that name's not in your family. Where does it come from? The point there is that names are very important and they carry meaning. And that's what we're going to look at as we go through it. Um, even our names have great meaning, whether we realize it or not. And, and I don't know if you've studied it at all or if you all even know what your name really means. But it's amazing to see how people live up to their names. That is really significant. It's something to take away that might be of value to you. Proverbs 22.1 tells us, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. So the point is not what the name means, but a good name is a blessing. And that's the thing to take from that. Well, as I said already, these names didn't just happen. God had chosen them, and we'll see as they fall out what, what value they have. But in Genesis 4.26, it says, The people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And this happened about 230 years after the fall. Uh, we know that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. It also says that um, Adam was 130 when Seth was born. Seth was 105 when Enosh was born. Adds up to 235 years. It says when Enosh was born, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Um, we also learned a couple weeks ago, Yahweh, which signifies God's absolute being, means I am who I am. He has no beginning, no ending, no becoming, no dependence upon anything outside of himself. That is his name. The significance of the statement that the people began to call upon the name of the Lord is that they're now seeking the plans in the name of the Lord himself. They're beginning to try to understand that. And we need to realize people do not call upon the name of God unless God has first moved in their heart to call upon him. That's a real big thing. Well, God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, which I'm sure you've, you've heard this enough, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between you and your offspring and her offspring, I shall bruise your head, or he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is called, for those that are interested, the Proto-Evangelicum, which is the first message of the gospel in the Bible. Now, those that were around then understood this pointed to a Messiah who would set things right for them. Yet we now, in the age of grace, the new covenant, we realize so much more than they realized. They had this first round of promise. We see Jesus Christ. We know about him. He's been revealed to us much more than he had been revealed to them. Jesus came to reveal the Father. So we have much more than they have. And that's real important for us to keep track of as we look back in this. And that the very name Yahweh reminds us that in the Bibles, some names, which are not merely labels, tell us about the people and their character. So this is things that we'll put together as we walk through this. This is also the beginning of a cycle. And in this cycle that we see over and over again throughout the Old Testament, Man sins against God. Man is carried away by his sin and eventually 
has some great need because they're under some calamity. Man, and of course God moves in man, but man finally realizes they need to call upon God. They go to the effort to finally call upon God and then God turns back to men and saves them from their calamity. We watch this over and over again through a lot of the Old Testament. Not suggesting not the New Testament either, but in the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, we see that cycle 13 distinct times. So this is something just to kind of lay our background as we step into this. And note, too, that this group of men have begun to call upon the Lord during what even more later in, in coming sermons we'll see as a very wicked time upon the earth. I'm not sure there never was something that wasn't wicked on the earth after sin came. But this is considered a pretty wicked time and we'll, we'll see more about that. So as a result, many have called Genesis 4.26 the first revival because it is the first noted time that men have turned back to God after sin came into the world. So it's kind of a really big deal to take a look at that. Well, I want us to realize, too, there's lots to observe about the lineage, lineage of Noah. And we see that first in the way the patriarchs are presented. There's a cycle in that. Um, in each of the distinct cases, the patriarch is named. The year the patriarch sires the next patriarch is identified. We're then told how long the patriarch lived after he sired that patriarch. We're told that all of them fathered other sons and daughters. Then we're told how many years they lived total. And then, except for the special case of Anuk, they all died. And, and that's pretty significant. I think most of the people caught that. Now, from these observations, we could make an awful lot of assumptions. But Scripture is sufficient, completely sufficient, for us to understand gospel and all the history that God wants us to grasp. So I'm not going to recommend that we chase assumptions. But since I brought it up, I owe it to you to let, give you an idea. What are some of these assumptions that we shouldn't chase? Okay, For instance, things that have been said or asked. Is, is the next patriarch always the firstborn son? You may never have thought of that, but I was surprised to read some of these too. Since all of the patriarchs died except Anuk, can we assume that Anuk was the only one that paid heed to God? Did all the rest of them ignore him? Well, that's maybe not even valid. And a big one that a lot of people like, since the years are clearly given, and if we add them up carefully, we discover that the flood came 1,656 years after Adam was created. Does that matter? Is that a big deal? Well, it might be in some places, but for us discussing Genesis 5, it isn't. So I'm not here. I don't want to spend a lot of time discussing assumptions today. We're going to let Scripture, direct observations from the text, drive what we're trying to say. So look at 5, 1, and 2 again. This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man, Adam, when they were created. Well, there's an awful good reason to believe this is the end 
of Adam's direct count of creation to man, um, which was preserved and passed down to Moses somehow, if not also by the Holy Spirit. Um, in fact, every patriarch that is named in Genesis 5 lived during the time of Adam, except Noah. So, if you had a question about God, you went and talked to Adam. Now, he's sitting back there, and it's not you guys. He's sitting back there, and he is really old. But that's in our term. We don't know that age back then, this is another assumption, they might have been a little like us. Who knows? They were certainly different than we are. That's all we know. Okay? But the biggest thing about it, then, is that the history of heaven and earth includes all the things regarding creation. Those ended at Genesis 2-4 with respect to what Adam really had to pass on or however you want to look at it. So they had to be passed down by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so eventually to get to Moses, the Holy Spirit had a lot to do with it too. But Noah took everything forward that he had heard from the rest of the patriarchs who had heard it directly from Adam. So just some things that we take with there. But not stated in Genesis 5-2 is what we read in Genesis 1-28. Be fruitful and multiply. And they clearly had latched onto that. Because in those 1,500 years, and this is an assumption, it is estimated that there were about 7 billion people in the world. This assumption is worth at least thinking about simply from the fact that because these 10 very long-living patriarchs have been around for so long, and because of the, the state of the world, and God, we already know this past Genesis 5, what God's going to do, and John will talk about that. How, what did the world look like? Well, we don't know really, but we know about how big it was. That's all it tells us. We, there's a lot of questions we could try to answer in that. So suffice to say, it's a reasonable assumption, and it helps us picture what we're looking at. That's all. Okay? And unlike the presentation of Cain's descendants, the presentation of the descendants of Adam through Seth on down, little is said about what they did except for the fact that Noah built the ark. But we'll find today that very much is said about each, each one of these men. They continued the lineage from Adam to Noah, and it would be reasonably assumed, and I think in a sense observed, that they all passed on what they knew to their families. And this is kind of important. So they knew about creation, what they understood about the character of God and how they saw God important enough to call upon and to worship was knowledge they understood and passed on. They got it from Adam. Now, just so we get a grasp of this, this is reality TV for them. Seriously, they sat around and talked about what they knew. They didn't have all these other distractions that we have. That's the point. It's clear that all the patriarchs were observant of what they saw every day. As David captured in Psalm 19, 1 through 4, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech for they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voices go out to all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. 
And Paul says in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So by way of observation, I think we can say all the patriarchs knew some of these things. And they were old, as we think of old, when they had their first children, or at least when they sired the next patriarch. It may not have been their first child, but clearly they were old, and they were quite old. Maybe I could use the term very, very old when they died. Um, I can't imagine being like Methuselah, living to be 969 years old. Things to kind of grasp. But Adam and Eve stepped into sin, and every one of the patriarchs was a sinner. Even Anuk, who walked with God. And we have the same thing. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Nothing has changed since then. We all need salvation. And I contend that they knew that and they understood it a little bit. But our overwhelming emphasis of Genesis 5 then is that all men die. Obviously, men and women. All ages die. There are two very special cases in the Bible. Enoch and Elijah. They are very special. We'll talk a little bit about that and then we'll see something possibly. But they all live very long. Anuk was caught up to heaven. Yes, Lamech died five years before the flood. And all the rest lived to be nearly or more than 900 years old. And I would contend that this is real time. Others don't always agree with that. I believe God defined the days for us. He defined the years for us. And when he wrote in his word through the Holy Spirit how old they were, this is how old they were. Our problem is understanding things that happened before the flood, not what happened before the flood. That's the difficulty. That's many people's problem with understanding salvation. It's not that it's not clear, because it's right there. But if God doesn't move in our heart to see it, it's blank. And that's sad. That's very sad, though. Well, <clears throat> one last observation about it deals with the ages of the patriarchs which ran from 365 for the youngest one mentioned, that's a nuke because he was caught up, and Methuselah, again, who lived to be 969. No matter how we look at this, we once again have to be left with the idea these people passed on the knowledge, everything they knew. All but one knew Adam. That is really amazing. But they only had, with everything they knew, their knowledge was limited to the promise that a Messiah was coming. As compared to ours, as I mentioned earlier, we're told Christ came and fully revealed the Father in John 14, 8, and 9. And in Romans 10, 9, we're given the whole story. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it may be hard to grasp that, but they, outside of Anuk, didn't fully have a handle on that. And we don't know what Anuk had completely, but we do sense that he had more. And with that, let's answer that question. How did he understand and seek God when it seems the other patriarchs didn't do that? 
at least it seems that way. They seem to be pretty normal people, not normal like us because they live so old. Yet if you've, I'm good. Yet if you think about after the flood and the number of years and how sin has progressed, it shouldn't be a surprise that we die younger than they did. And I could go into a lot of other scientific reasons for that, but the scientists don't accept my science, so I'm not going to go there. Um, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That is really significant. And what I want to focus on first um, is that he walked with God. What does it mean? It represents a very true, deep relationship with the Messiah even though he's still trying to figure out what he's looking forward to. <clears throat> Spurgeon noted, you cannot consciously walk with a person whose existence is not known to you. When we walk with a man, we know that he is there. We hear his footfall if we can't see his face. We have some sort of very clear perception that there is such a person at our side. If I wish to find a man's most familiar friend, it would surely be one with whom he walked. And it just makes sense. He also went on to say, Enoch walked with God after Methuselah had been born 300 years. And doubtless, he'd walked with him before that. It's pretty incredible, a walk of 300 years. People like us, we might get tired of somebody else after 300 years, even close spouses, okay? Um, but Enoch, in his relationship with the Lord, walked with him day by day, even to the point that he walked right into paradise. He never died. So, Enoch walked with God means that Enoch walked by faith. And that's really important. It talks about walking in the light and walking in agreement with God. And we're given some of that. 1 John 1, 5 through 7 highlights what walking in the light means. I think many of you know it. It says, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And Amos asks the question, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Well, this suggests reconciliation with God, for two cannot walk together except by agreement. So it would seem that Anuk had reconciled with God, that God had moved in him to do that, a picture that's already beginning to show. Anuk's walk included all the parts of a godly, righteous, and sober life. To walk with God is to set God always before you. To act as if you are under his eye. To show that you care for the things that matter to him. That you do not want to cause him alarm about you or to offend him in some way. The Holy Spirit, instead of saying Anuk lived, says Anuk walked with God. While the others seem to be living to themselves in the world. Anuk lived to God. It was the joy of his life. He was removed to a better world. As he did not live like the rest of mankind, so he did not leave the world by death as they did. He was found because God had taken him. Now, 
Hebrews 11.5 describes Anuk's faith for us, so we can fully grasp it. It says, by faith, Anuk was taken from this life, so he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who was pleased God. And Hebrews goes on in 11.6 to say why his faith was different and why we need it. Uh, I have to read this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's the faith we need. Anukas also noted as being the first prophet in the Bible. I don't know if you knew this or not, but if you go to Jude 14 and 15, you read, Enuk, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and convict all of them for, I'm sorry, of all of them for their ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then God took him, says tons about him. Um, as I said before, only Anuk and Elijah were translated like that or taken up. And these two men clearly abided in their relationship with the eternal God. It doesn't mean that we don't abide if we don't get taken up, but they have abided at a level that deserves our studies, all I'm saying. Well, finally, what I really want to discuss this morning, those things are really important. But when I first started this and I began to dig into the names, that's what got me so excited about Genesis 5. And I believe the names clearly, obviously tell the story of the gospel to the patriarchs. We don't put into names what they did. So the things in the names were very obvious to them. Okay? Now, a, a couple things along the way to fully grasp the patriarchs and their names. Let me first introduce them the way Martin Luther introduces them. He said, this is the greatest glory of the primitive world. They had so many good, wise, and holy men at the same time. We must not think that these are ordinary names of plain people. And next to Christ and John the Baptist, they were the most outstanding heroes this world has ever produced. And on the last day they shall behold, or we shall behold and admire their grandeur. And one more note about a great name, Ecclesiastes 7.1 as I'd mentioned earlier about good names, it says a good name is better than precious ointment. And as I've said already, I contend these ten men had great names. Uh, now before I go into it though, the names that we have are proper names. So unlike being translated, they are transliterated. So in our Bible, their names sound like the words in Hebrew that they are. And sounds like is a transliteration. And makes it kind of tough. Uh, tracking proper names is not easy, especially in older biblical time. Some things have passed through. Remember, everything that happened before the flood had to go through Noah and forward. And of course, the Holy Spirit gives guidance in all of this. So there is a way to understand. Um, if you're into studying lexicons, you will come away very frustrated trying to find these things. 
But we do have Hebrew scholars in this world who have studied in depth roots of Hebrew words. And from that, you can glean what there is. But I want to tell you up front, there are still strong authorities that contend what you might see. But I contend it's obvious. So that's where it stands. And this is what I put together and I want you to see. But I also want to bring out Deuteronomy 29.29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. This came a little later than the patriarchs, but the point made here is they had their names. And I say given by God, and I say they knew what those names meant, and they had a lot of time to sit around and think about stuff and do what we're going to do in just a minute and understand what the names mean and what that story might be. But again, as I said, we have Hebrew experts who have helped us. So let's see what they actually mean. I think you know Adam already. It's the word for man. And it, uh, I'll leave it at that. Seth is given to us in the Bible. It means appointed or a substitute out of Genesis 4.25. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. A quick note there, Seth was created in the image of God. But he was also created in the depraved image of man, Adam. And that is what we all have. That's another reason they needed to see the picture of salvation because they are all now in a corrupted image of God. With salvation, that image gets fixed. And one day, at that point, it will be completely fixed for everyone who's saved. Enosh means man, person, mortal, frail, or miserable. They're kind of together. It comes from the root anash, to be incurable, used of a wound, grief, woe, sickness, or wickedness. Um, I'm skipping a few things as I look here. Kenan can mean sorrow, dirge, or elegy. Okay? Mahalalel means the blessed of God. This one's pretty straightforward. Mahalal means blessed or praise. El is a name for God. Mahalalel, the blessed of God. And you can see that in other words in the Old Testament. Daniel, um, I forgot, God is my judge. Nathaniel, gift of God, okay? Those are pretty simple to grasp. Jared means he descends. Mahalalel's son was named Jared from the verb yarad, meaning shall come down. Enuk means dedication or dedicated, trained and vowed. Um, it also means teaching or commencement. He was the first of four generations of preachers. And this is kind of a big thing to pick up. In fact, the earliest recorded prophecy, as I said, was from Anuk, the second, concerning the second coming of Christ. And he plays over into Methuselah, which means man of the dart or spear, or when he is dead, it shall come. And you can see how that can easily come to, to bring death. Well, the flood of Noah didn't come as a big surprise to all these people later. It had been preached on for four generations, but something strange happened when Anuk was 65, from which time he walked with God. Anuk was given a prophecy that as long as his son was alive, the judgment of the flood would be withheld. But as soon as he died, the flood would be sent forth. And you might ask, where do you come up with that? Well, Spurgeon came up with it this way. So Anuk named his son to reflect the prophecy. 
The name Methuselah comes from two roots. Muth, a root that means death, from Shalak, which means to bring or to send forth. Thus the name Methuselah signifies his death shall bring. And the point there is that they knew this was going to happen. It's incredible. We don't have any written proof of that, but if you study enough, you can see this is quite possible, okay? And the flood came pretty much when it was suggested, much later. And I would add one piece about Methuselah's life. He did live the longest, okay? And you say, well, so? In effect, it's a symbol of God's mercy in forestalling the coming judgment. You think about that. By having the longest lifetime, then, he demonstrates the extreme extensiveness along suffering of God's mercy. How long God put up with all of this before he sent the flood. And we'll learn more about why he would do that pretty soon. Lamech means lament or despair. We even have a word that has come through our English language, lament or lamentation, which suggests despairing. And finally, Noah, who we hear a lot about in the coming weeks, means rest or respite. Lamech was the father of Noah, which is derived from Nasham, to bring relief or comfort, as Lamech explained himself. Now, we'll take a moment. This is kind of the piece I hope you've been waiting for. This is the part that really excited me some time ago. We'll put these names together. You've already seen them in Hebrew here in Genesis 5. We'll transliterate them to English, the way I've tried to explain it to you here. And it reads like this. Man appointed mortal sorrow, the blessed of God shall come down, teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. This is a summary of God's plan of redemption. We'll look at it again in a minute. But it's clearly orated to those who are listening, those who are living in the time of Genesis 5. And I stole a comment, another comment from Spurgeon. You'll never convince me that a group of Jewish rabbis deliberately contrived to hide the Christian gospel right here in the genealogy of Adam. God put it there very clearly. Now, let's read this again with some transition words added. I think I can take that liberty. It says, a man will be appointed, a mortal who will suffer great sorrow. The blessed of God himself shall come down to earth. He will teach until he suffers death, and his death will bring rest to the despairing. A clearly beautiful picture of salvation. Jesus in the Trinity the Son of God came to earth in the incarnation. He taught, he suffered, he made clear to everyone what the kingdom of heaven was supposed to be as he preached on eternity, grace, mercy, faith, salvation, repentance, and all aspects of the kingdom of heaven. Until his own people rejected him and killed him. And we all know that story. And his death, the death of Jesus, our risen Savior, is the same story it was then as it is now. It is the only key to repentance and salvation. And I believe the pre-diluvial patriarchs understood that message because it was in their names.
And I hope maybe this has encouraged us to dig deeper into the Bible. Um, a lot of people ask me a lot of questions about this when I've talked about it in little groups. I've never spoken about it in this bigger group. And yes, I didn't know anything about it, and God moved in me to dig, and it's incredible. It was one of the best finds of gold nuggets in the Bible I think I ever had. It's really something. So I would encourage you to do that. If God directs you to study deep, do it. See what comes. Those that were in Sunday school, you heard the talk about milk. This is not milk. This is digging. This is where you want to go. You want to find things like this. They are a real blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this message that you have provided to us through Genesis 5. The message of salvation. It is clear. It is important. And we even have an example in Genesis 5 that Anuk grasped it. I'm not suggesting the rest of the patriarchs did not, but I think that just like today, there are those with varying levels of faith, and more than anything, had they realized the things that they had around them, they would have rushed to faith. Help us to grasp the faith of Anuk, and as it says in 11.6, to grab that faith, to realize that without faith, we cannot be saved. We pray that for all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.